try this again. Good afternoon, Mosaic. Um, as always, it's a privilege for me to be able to uh, be um, able to preach uh, God's word uh, to you. Um, there are uh, many times when we're studying a passage together. It's, um, some of the passages that we study together, just sometimes I feel like it requires more of our mental uh, faculties. Um, this one is going to be one of them. We're going to be thinking a lot. Um, unfortunately for you, can't zone out during the sermon. Um, but I do pray that it will be a blessing to you. Um, as all of us know, uh, the greatest event, uh, the greatest event that happened, that has happened in all of history is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? I think we all could agree with that. The greatest event that has happened to, um, in all of history is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now with that, Jesus Christ was able to usher in a decisive victory. Um, and so there is a sense in which we as Christians, we, we get to celebrate the fact that next week we're going to celebrate, uh, many Christians are going to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ, he rose again from the death. He defeated death. And so we as Christians, we rejoice at the fact that Jesus Christ, he came to this world, he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, he lived a righteous life, and he died in our place, and he is risen again. And I think that's something that is worthy of celebrating. And yet, there is, um, so in a sense, all of us, all of us, who, if you're a Christian, you should be joyful. You should be excited about the fact that Jesus Christ came, he died, and he rose again. And he, as I said, that he has won this decisive victory. This victory has, has, has been given to us. And so we should be able to experience this kind of joy where we're always celebrating, where we're always happy, where we're always excited because of what Jesus Christ has done. And yet, and yet, that's not the reality, is it? Somehow, even though, yes, Jesus Christ, he secured our victory, somehow there's still sadness, even amongst Christians. Somehow there's, there's still the devil prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may, might devour. There's that... There's the temptation that still exists in this world. There are people trying to steal your identity. And using your identity to purchase things. If you don't know, that is actually my story right now. Someone is currently using my identity. And you realize these things that we face in life, and you, you realize the, those struggles that we face, and we're annoyed and we're frustrated and we're like yes in a sense we're supposed to be excited because Jesus Christ won our victory but there's another sense in which we ask ourselves where is the victory that I'm supposed to be enjoying right now how am I supposed to be enjoying this victory that was won for me when I'm in the midst of my struggles Today our passage is going to be found in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 110. 
Psalm 110. If you could make your way to that passage. If you um, reading from the Pew Bible, we are in page uh, 535, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Says a Psalm of David. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. O Lord, sovereign Lord, sovereign King, we do come and we bow before your majesty. Lord, we ask that you will do something that this preacher cannot do, and that is speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, we ask that you will grant us a, an understanding to see exactly what your passage is saying, what your word is saying. And Lord, help us to live accordingly. Um, Lord, we trust in you today to do the work in the hearts of the hearers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, one of the reasons why um, I like the Bible, I mean, we there's many reasons why we love the Bible, but one of the things is that from time and time and time again, you'll realize that there are passages that you're like, wow, if God did not inspire someone to write this, then I don't know how a person could write this. One of the passages is the passage that we're reading today. You wouldn't understand how a human being could write such a passage that so profoundly explains something that will happen years later. And so if you were following with me, um, we are in Psalm 110, you would notice that David, it says it begins as a Psalm of David. David is the one who is writing this Psalm. David himself was a king and he is penning these words and he says, this is a declaration to the, of the Lord to my Lord. Another version puts it, the Lord says to my Lord. And it says, what is the Lord saying to my Lord? What is the Lord saying to my Lord? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if this is your first time reading this, you'll be like, I'm confused. I'm not understanding what this passage is saying. I'm not understanding the significance of this passage. Maybe even if this is your 12th time reading this or the 100th time reading this, you'll be like, I'm still confused as to what this passage is saying. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, you won't still feel like that. But if you do, that's why we have our missional family. But um, the passage, it begins with the Lord says to my Lord. What does that mean? 
does it mean that the Lord is speaking to the Lord? Is the Lord speaking to himself? Well, we understand that there are two figures. The Lord speaks to my Lord. Um, and it almost does sound confusing. But the word Lord uh, could possibly refer to one who has authority over you, a ruler or a king. So maybe someone could read this and say, okay, this person who is speaking, he's speaking of the Lord God who is speaking to my king, maybe. But then you realize that David, at this time, he was in authority. He was the king. There was nobody higher than David. You follow? And so if he says, if David says the Lord, God, Yahweh, Elohim, says to my Lord, perhaps he is signaling, signifying the fact that there is still one above him. Even though David, he was the ruler at the time, he was the king at the time, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, And of course, you scholars already understand where we're, where we're going with this. Um, if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, unfortunately, you won't find it in the, um, in the slides. Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 41 through 46. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Jesus is speaking about this particular passage. Now, he's dealing with these Pharisees, these Jewish people, these leaders who um, believe in the Old Testament. They believe in God's word. And so Jesus points this passage, this passage to show them something that they're missing. Chapter 22, verses 41 and 46. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Okay, so the Jewish people, they traditionally, everyone, we all know that um, from the Old Testament, it says that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. Okay? David's great, 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 great grandchild was promised, David was promised that his great, 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 great grandchild will be the Messiah. Okay? So, Jesus asked the question, who's, when, who's, who's, Who's the Christ? Whose son is he? And then they said, of course, that's David. He's going to be the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in spirit calls him Lord? If the Messiah is going to be David's son, then why will David call him Lord? Verse 44, it says, he, he, he quotes this passage. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, may, I put your enemies under your feet. Where is this king? If then, I'm sorry, um, if, then David, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any question. So basically what Jesus is asking is, if David, who is the great-great-grandparent, grandfather of this Messiah, why would David call him Lord? Jesus, of course, was pointing to the fact that this Messiah, this, this Messiah 
is none other than the Lord himself. He is no ordinary man. He is no ordinary being. He himself is Lord. And we've studied this before, the Trinity, and the fact that there's three persons and one God. The fact is, is that the Lord is himself Jesus Christ in this passage. Psalm 110, you see it. It says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So if you could just change these words. It says, this is the declaration of God, the Father, to my Lord Jesus. So God the Father is speaking to God the Son in this passage. The Father is speaking to the Son and he's saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. So there's, we understand the identity and, of this passage. We understand who is speaking to who in this passage. But where is uh, this Lord? Where is this Lord? Verse 1. He says, sit at my right hand. We know that the Bible teaches that God is everywhere, but he is in heaven in a special, unique way. So by telling Jesus to sit at my right hand, he signals that Jesus is indeed in heaven. He is in heaven. This is where the Lord is. Now that is impressive and in and of itself, but it's not unique because even angels are in heaven. But he is not simply residing in heaven as the rest of the angels. It says to sit at my right hand, meaning that Jesus Christ holds to the highest of high seats in heaven. The king is at the right hand of the father, ruling alongside the father. Ruling all heaven and earth, that is. And Jesus did not ascend to this seat on his own as though one who is revolting against the Father. But the Father says to his Son, come here, sit at my right hand. The Son assumes his rightful position alongside his Father. This is a kingship that is not interrupted by congressional power, nor is there any system of government that will hold him accountable if they disagree with any of his decrees. He has the highest of high positions that no creature has ever or will ever ascend to. This is the place where only the triune God dwells. This is a high position. But look at the pride in which David is saying this. The Lord says, to my Lord. He personalizes this. This is my Lord that is sitting on the right hand of God. And I want us, as we read this psalm, to remember that these psalms were not just written for David. They were written for the people so that they could say, that, say it themselves or sing it themselves. And so I want you to personalize it yourself and think, yes, the Lord God says to my Lord, my Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is also my Lord. He is seated in heaven. He is on his throne. And yet I can call him my Lord. I can say that's my Lord. 
I can say that I have a special, unique relationship with this king. How does this king treat his enemies? Let's look at the passage. It says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Jesus is sitting in his seat, and the passage says, until the father makes all his enemies his footstool. Now, you know what a footstool is. When you are sitting down, the footstool would be used to go under your feet so that you can uh, prop your feet up, so you can put your feet up. Now, imagine this. The father saying to his son, I want you to sit here right beside me. And your enemies will be as your footstool. They will be, they will lie down before here, before your throne. Imagine you putting your feet up on your enemies. Now for the modern day reader, you do not have to really delve into its historical significance for you to understand that this means trouble for Christ's enemies, right? The picture here was a picture of an ancient Near Eastern, um, abs- it, was, it was an ancient Near Eastern picture of absolute victory portraying the idea that one's enemy is underfoot. If you look at Psalm 8, verse 6, it says, You have given him, speaking of man, dominion over the works of your hand, You have put all things under his foot. That's Psalm 8.6. It's a signaling dominion. Dominion. The idea is that Jesus will sit by the Father's Father until the Father gives him dominion over his enemies. All of Jesus' enemies will be under his feet. Now, Yes, it is true that on the cross, when Jesus Christ died and he rose again, there was a decisive victory. The victory was already sealed. But there is a sense in which, right now as we are living in this world, the victory that Jesus Christ has secured for us is not without being contested, is it? People still go against Jesus Christ right now. People still hate Jesus Christ. Evil still reigns in this world. And so Jesus is still sitting on his throne, but yet there is going to be a time where all of his enemies will, we could visibly see all his enemies under his feet. Evil will be wiped away. Righteousness will rule. Now when will this be? If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, trying not to go to too many passages, this, uh, there's so many passages that connects with this um, psalm. But Hebrews 10, verse 13 is very important. begin uh, yeah well 
Romans 3.13, um, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. See that? Hebrews 10.13, it says, he, that is Jesus, is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Which means that this has not happened yet. He's still waiting. He's still waiting and his enemies until his enemies become his footstool. We're going to get into the significance of that in a minute. The king right now is simply waiting. He is awaiting the time of his second coming. And he will make war with all of his enemies. That is Satan alongside with his demons and those people who have not bowed down their knees to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it talks about this mighty scepter here in verse 2. It says the mighty scepter. The mighty scepter, this the scepter was a staff that the ruler carried. Having this staff meant that he was truly the ruler. And from Zion, verse 2, it says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Zion was the place where on earth, the physical place where God's kingdom was not supposed to be contested. It was supposed to be the, where the people of God were. I believe that this is what it means. It's the people of God, that his scepter will be from the people of God. So our friends, I want you to be reminded that Jesus Christ is indeed our king. And I want you to remember that that has serious implications in our lives. As king, Jesus Christ is in control of everything right now that's happening. Even though there is still evil in this world, Jesus Christ is still somehow in control to make these evil things come out for our good. Jesus Christ is not in only in control over evil. He's in control of the whole world, the whole universe. Jesus Christ is still seated, even through death, even through misery. And although Jesus is not even the author of sin, but when we are sinned against, he could even use that for our good. And so history is not just a series of random events that's happened throughout the ages. But history is going in a particular direction to glorify Jesus Christ, to bring it to a point of closure where we will be able to visibly see Jesus Christ reigning as king. So friends, I want you to know that yes, Jesus Christ has won the victory, but right now he's seated. He's sitting down right now, and one day he will truly show the victory in a physical way. So the best is yet still yet to come. Verses 4 to 7, so verse 1 to 3 talked about Jesus' um, kingship. Verses 4 through 7 speaks about his priesthood. Follow? So verses 1 to 3 talks about his kingship. Verses 4 to 7 speaks about his um, preach, um, uh, priesthood. 
In the Old Testament, the high priest was the mediator between the holy God and his sinful people. God could not be approached in any way because the people were indeed sinful. As a way of God accepting the people's forgiveness, there were priests or high priests that would enter into his holy place and they would bring sacrifices to God and they would make so that the people's sins could be forgiven. Okay? So they were the mediator between God and the people. So just merely feeling bad for your sins was not going to be able to cut it for God. You needed a representative to go inside this temple for you, to speak to God on your behalf, and to make the necessary sacrifice for your sins. And in the history of Israel, there has never been one who was both king and priest. The priest had their distinct roles, and the king had his distinct role. Now these roles come together in one person, as we see in Psalm 110. In fact, there's uh, three offices that we speak of when we speak of Christ. Christ is, has, Christ is a prophet, priest, and king. For now, we won't deal with the Jesus as a prophet. But from this passage, we see this priestly king. Look at verse 4 with me. You have, the Lord has sworn an oath, and it will not, and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Okay, let's stop there. I'm about to get in, get with you, and we're about to talk about a lot of random stuff that hopefully will make more sense to you in a bit. Um, I want you to think for a second with me. Um, queen Elizabeth II, she is the current queen of England. Now, if someone wants to be next, right? If someone wants to be the next queen, be the next king, can that person, can a random person just say, hey, look, um, guys, I want to be king or I want to be queen. Do you think that could happen? Most of us are saying no. And why is that? Why can't any random person do that? You have to stay within the family, right? In fact, if you go back, um, I believe you can go, you can go back to 849 or 842 or something like that. That's how far the lineage goes back, and you see from family to family is passed on to pass and is passed on, and that's the lineage. Okay, you can't break that. It's a family thing. That's in some ways you can explain um, the Old Testament in terms of the priesthood. The priesthood had to come from a specific line. Nobody could just say, um, where do I sign up to become a priest? You don't just say that, right? It had to come from a particular line, particularly the line of Aaron or um, the Levites. So, and these are the people who would be responsible in God's temple. They would be the ones that would take in a tithe if someone was tithing. They would have that. They would take it. Now, Kevin uh, preached this once before. I believe it was Genesis 14, right, Kevin? I think it was the Melchizedek passage where we find that this random guy, 
comes in the story out of nowhere. It's found in uh, Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. We see, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God the most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God of the most high, who has handed you over your enemies to you. Verse 20, the end of verse 20 says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, that's strange. Because only the the priests are supposed to receive a tenth of everything. And this random guy, who doesn't seem to have any genealogy, right, that's recorded, we don't have any information about him, he receives a tenth as well. This is pointing to something more significant. Some people have suggested that this Melchizedek guy is actually um, a prefigure of Jesus Christ. Some have um, suggested otherwise, but whatever the case is, we begin to get a hint, a picture, that yes, even though the Levitical priesthood was broken, it was not perfect, right? You had to keep making sacrifices year after year. You had to continue to go back to this priest, and you had to continue. It was, it, there was, it was imperfect, but there's some kind of, there was this other lineage where this person has no mom, no, no dad, where um, Hebrews chapter 5 um, talks about that, Hebrews 5 verses 6 to 11, and Hebrews uh, 6 verses 20 to, and to 7 verse 28. You see this person and you're like, okay, is there a different kind of priesthood that is different from the Levitical priesthood? And this psalm is hinting at that. Verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Meaning that there is going to be a different kind of priesthood. And this priest is forever. We know that when Jesus Christ, he came to this world, he came and he died and he rose back up to life again. He has secured our victory forever. We do not have to continue going back to one priest over and over and over again. He has secured our victory forever. And Jesus Christ is our priest forever. He is our, our, our mediator between, um, to, to God. Jesus Christ is our king. He rules. He governs us. He rules over evil. He rules over all of the affairs of men. And Jesus Christ is also priest. Jesus is the one who offers us this forgiveness. But Jesus does not only just make a sacrifice. He gives an animal for sacrifice. Jesus Christ gave up his own body. And friends, we get to experience this king who is also a priest. We get to experience this awesome relationship with God because of this. He says, you are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. 
He will judge the nations. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Will means future. Future means it has not happened yet. Jesus Christ will usher in a, a, a victory in which all of us will be able to see. And even though right now, today, we are unable to see this victory, we still see evil in our land. We still see things happening and school shootings and all of, we, we think about so much evil, even evil that has happened in our own lives, people who have mistreated us or even hurt that we have experienced in the past month or the past week, we realize that, yes, this king is on his throne, but he's sitting down right now. He's still sitting down right now. He's still allowing things to happen as they are. He's still ruling. He has not left his position of rulership. He's still reigning and he's still ruling. But all of these things are coming to a purposeful end. Jesus Christ has not forgotten us. Jesus is our king, and yet Jesus Christ is our priest as well. The Bible says that Jesus, um, in Hebrews, I don't have the passage here with me right now, but the Bible says that Jesus continues to make this, he continues to intercede for us, he continues uh, to pray for us. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And so this application is for every person here today, for Number one, those of us who struggle with random events that's happened in their lives where they're like, I don't understand what's going on in my life. You might be here and you're thinking, I, I don't understand. I want you to continually trust in this King, Jesus Christ. I want you to continue to anchor your hope in this King. He has not left his throne. He is not worried. He is not concerned. He is seated, composed, ruling. He knows all things. He even knows how many, how much hair is on our head. This is our king. And for those of you who have not yet bowed your knees to Jesus Christ, I do want you to know that this king is still sitting and he is he is waiting. There is still chance for you to be on his side. There is still a chance for you to, 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 to become a Christian, to believe in his name. One day it will be too late when he is crushing him and he's crushing all his enemies. At that point, it will be too late. But for now, friends, you have an opportunity to come to Jesus Christ. This sermon is also for those of us who are in a place where we feel like, man, I've, I feel like, I sense that my sins have separated me. My anger or the way that I've looked at um, this picture or whatever it might be, this sinful thing that I've done, I sense 
a gap between me and God. I want you to see this priesthood. That Jesus Christ is not only king, but he is also your priest. He is the one that forgives your sins. He is the one that brings this pardon. And because of him, friend, you have a priesthood forever in heaven and you can come back to him and you can ask God for forgiveness. So I want to call you back too if you feel like, hey, look, I've blown it. I've sinned against God. That you have this priest who is in heaven currently, right now, seated at the right hand of God. You have this, this mediator. You have this intercessor right by the Father. And he makes intercession for you. The Bible says that he lives to make intercession for us. So will you respond? Will you respond today in believing and trusting in Jesus Christ as your king? Or will you respond and believe in that Jesus Christ is also your priest who makes intercession for you? I want to close with Jesus' word. Matthew 6. Because we understand that Jesus is king, Matthew 6, starting from verse 25, I want you to just hear Jesus' word to you. And because I know that many of us, we struggle with the realization when you see things happening in your life and the gap between that and Jesus being king. I want you to hear what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment of his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about your clothes? Observe how the wildflowers in the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. Let's pray.